Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to episode 29 of Destination Disaster. I am your host, Devin Carney. This week, we are discussing the deadly cyclone to ever impact in record-keeping history. The storm surpasses even such impacts as the 1900 Galveston Hurricane, Hurricane Mitch, and Hurricane Katrina combined. While not the strongest in terms of wind speed, the sheer amount of flooding that this storm brought into East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, was unprecedented. Several villages and offshore islands were completely decimated during the storm's lifespan and resulted in astronomically high death tolls measured somewhere between 300 and 500,000. This week, we are discussing the 1970 Bola Cyclone. A normal season for the North Indian Ocean lasts between April and December, with peaks between May and November. The 1970 season was a typical season for all accounts, having recorded 15 depressions, 11 deep depressions, 7 cyclonic storms, and 3 severe cyclonic storms. Now, you may notice that the ranking system for cyclones is different from what we use here in the United States. To clarify, cyclones in the North Indian Ocean are rated on the Indian Meteorological Department Tropical Cyclone Intensity Scale. Any tropical cyclone that develops within the North Indian Ocean between 100 degrees east and 45 degrees east is monitored by the India Meteorological Department. Within the region, a tropical cyclone is defined as being a non-frontal synoptic scale cyclone that originates over tropical or subtropical waters with organized convection and a definite cyclonic surface wind circulation. During 1999, the category's very severe cyclonic storm and super cyclonic storm were introduced, while the severe cyclonic storm with a core of hurricane winds category was eliminated. During 2015, another modification to the intensity scale took place, with the Indian Meteorological Department calling a system with 3-minute maximum sustained winds between 90 and 119 knots or 166 to 221 kilometers an hour an extremely severe cyclonic storm. What I'm about to outline now is the cyclonic scale that the Indian Meteorological Department uses. Depressions are the lowest classification of storm on the scale. To classify as a depression, storms must have 3-minute sustained winds of 20 to 31 miles per hour. Deep depressions are next, with 3-minute sustained winds of 32 to 38 miles per hour. As the system continues to strengthen, cyclonic storms are next and will be issued a name by the Indian Meteorological Department. 3-minute sustained winds must reach 39 to 54 miles per hour. Severe cyclonic storms have 3-minute sustained storm force winds of 55 to 72 miles per hour. Very severe cyclonic storms have 3-minute sustained winds of 73 to 102 miles per hour. Extremely severe cyclonic storms have 3-minute sustained hurricane winds of 104 to 137 miles per hour. And super cyclonic storms are the strongest and will have winds greater than 138 miles per hour. Quite the scale, huh? On November 1st, Tropical Storm Nora developed over the South China Sea and the West Pacific Ocean. 
The system lasted for four days before degenerating into a remnant low over the Gulf of Thailand on November 4th and subsequently moved west over the Malay Peninsula on November 5th, 1970. The remnants of the system contributed to the development of a new depression in the central bay of Bengal on the morning of November 8th. The depression intensified as it moved slowly northward and the India Meteorological Department upgraded it to a cyclonic storm the next day. No country in the region had ever named tropical cyclones during this time, so no new identity was given. The storm became nearly stationary that evening near 14.5 degrees north, 87 degrees east, but began to accelerate northward on November 10th. The Bola cyclone quickly strengthened, developing a well-defined eye. The cyclone reached peak intensity later in the day with 3-minute sustained wind speeds of 115 miles per hour and 1-minute sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. As the Bola cyclone made its way through the Bay of Bengal, an Indian freighter weighing in at 5,500 tons en route from Calcutta to Kuwait reported a distress signal that the ship was experiencing hurricane force winds forcing the ship to sink, resulting in the total loss of all 50 crew members. The ship was never found. Now, while this cyclone isn't the strongest to impact the region with regard to wind speed and storm size, this record is currently held by the Bangladesh cyclone that impacted in 1991 that killed over 138,000 people. The Bola cyclone is notorious for the sheer loss of life that occurred during the impact and subsequent events. As the storm began making landfall, several instruments located within proximity to the cyclone reported wind speeds that drove a catastrophically high storm surge which led to hundreds of thousands of deaths that were reported. The meteorological station in Chittagong, 59 miles to the east of where the storm made landfall, recorded winds of 89 miles per hour before an anemometer was blown off at about 2200 UTC on November 12th. A ship anchored in the port in the same area recorded a peak wind gust of 138 miles per hour about 45 minutes later. As the storm made landfall, it caused a 33-foot high storm surge at the Ganges Delta. and the port at Chittagong, the storm tide peaked out at about 13 feet above the average sea level, 3.9 feet of which was the storm surge. Radio Pakistan reported that there were no survivors on the 13 islands near Chittagong. A flight over the area showed that the devastation was complete throughout the southern half of Bola Island, and the rice crops of Bola Island, Hatia Island, and the nearby mainland coastline were destroyed. Several seagoing vessels in the ports of Chittagong and Mangla were reporting damage, and the airports of Chittagong and Cox's Bazar were under 3.3 feet of water for several hours. Now, due to the very limited record keeping that had been taken following the cyclone's impact, much of the financial damages, deaths, and even infrastructure destruction was estimated. It is estimated that over 3 million people were affected by the cyclone and that nearly $650 million in damages were reported. The survivors claimed that approximately 85% of homes in the area were destroyed or severely damaged, with the greatest destruction occurring along the coast. 90% of marine fishermen in the region suffered heavy losses, including the destruction of 9,000 offshore fishing boats. Of the 77 onshore fishermen, 46,000 were killed by the cyclone, and 40% of the survivors were severely affected. In total, approximately 65% of the fishing capacity of the coastal region was destroyed by the storm, in a region where about 80% of the protein consumed comes from fish. Agricultural damage was similarly severe with the loss of $63 million worth of crops and 280,000 cattle. Three months after the storm, 75% of the population was receiving food from relief workers, and over 150,000 relied upon aid for half of their food. The cyclone quickly dissipated once it made landfall, leaving in its wake sheer chaos and death. Barrier islands in the Bay of Bengal suffered catastrophic impacts, with some losing nearly 50% of their populations and being left without drinking water and crops for weeks. 
The storm surge devastated many of the offshore islands, wiping out villages and destroying crops throughout the region. In the most severely affected Upazila, Tasmodin, over 45% of the population of 167,000 was killed by the storm. A total of two surveys were completed by the Pakistan CETO, or the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, Cholera Research Laboratory. The first survey was conducted to identify immediate medical needs throughout the affected region, and the second was conducted to determine long-term planning and relief efforts that would be needed. Only 1.4% of the population was studied. The first survey concluded that the surface water in most of the affected regions had a comparable salt content to that drawn from wells except in Sudharam, where the water was almost undrinkable with a salt content up to half a percent. The mortality rate was estimated at 14.2%, equivalent to a death toll of 240,000. Cyclone-related morbidity was generally restricted to minor injuries, but a phenomenon dubbed cyclone syndrome was observed. This consisted of severe abrasions on the limbs and chest caused by survivors clinging to trees to withstand the storm surge. Initially, there were fears of an outbreak of cholera and typhoid fever in the weeks following the storm, but the survey found no evidence of an epidemic of cholera, smallpox, or any other disease in the region affected by the storm. The totals from the second survey were likely a considerable underestimate as several groups were not included. The 100,000 migrant workers who were collecting the rice harvest, families who were completely wiped out by the storm, and those who had migrated out of the region in the three months were not included. Excluding these groups reduced the risk of hearsay and exaggeration. The survey concluded that the overall death toll was, at minimum, 224,000. The worst effects were felt in Tasmudin, where the mortality rate was 46.3%, corresponding to approximately 77,000 deaths in Dana alone. The mean mortality throughout the affected region was 16.5%. Now, you'd think that following a catastrophic impact such as this, the government response would be near immediate in the aftermath, right? Yeah, well that's not the case here. In the immediate aftermath, three Pakistani gunboats and a hospital ship responded two days following the impact. The leader of East Pakistan at this time, Yahya Khan, arrived to the affected area drunk and unable to comprehend the sheer magnitude of the damage. He placed responsibility of the relief efforts under Admiral Hassan. In the 10 days following the cyclone, one military transport aircraft and three crop dusting aircraft were assigned to relief work by the Pakistani central government. The central government said that it was unable to transfer military helicopters from West Pakistan as the Indian government did not grant clearance to cross the intervening Indian territory, a charge the Indian government denied. By November 24th, the central government had allocated a further 116 million US dollars to finance relief operations in the disaster area. President Khan arrived in Dhaka to take charge of the relief operations on November 24th. The governor of East Pakistan, Vice Admiral S.M. Assad, denied charges that the armed forces had not acted quickly enough and said supplies were reaching all parts of the disaster area except for some small pockets. A week after the cyclone's landfall, President Khan conceded that his government had made slips and mistakes in its handling of the relief efforts. He said there is a lack of understanding of the magnitude of the disaster. He also said that the 1970 general election slated for December 7th would take place on time, although eight or nine of the worst affected districts might experience delays, denying rumors that the election would be postponed. Internal strife began to develop between the politicians within the central government. It got so bad that a rally of 50,000 people marched in the capital of Dhaka in protest, calling for the president's resignation. By this period, the Pakistan Red Crescent had been operating independently due to disputes over supplies. 
The Pakistan Observer detailed the true horror and criticized the response to the disaster. A reporter from the Pakistan Observer spent a week in the worst-hit areas in early July 1971 and saw none of the tents supplied by relief agencies being used to house survivors and commented that grants for building new houses were insufficient. The Observer regularly carried front-page stories with headlines like, No Relief Coordination, while publishing government statements saying, Relief operations are going smoothly. In January, the coldest period of the year in East Pakistan, the National Relief and Rehabilitation Committee, led by the editor of Itifak, said thousands of survivors from the storm were passing their days under the open sky. A spokesman said families who were made homeless by the cyclone were receiving up to 250 rupees, equivalent to $55 in 1971 and equivalent to $341 in 2018, to rebuild. But the resources were scarce, and he feared that survivors would eat the cash. As East Pakistan continued to devolve and trust in the government declined, several international agencies and countries stepped in to offer aid and help coordinating the response to the cyclone. Countries such as India, the United Kingdom, and the United States all rose funds and assisted in the distribution of aid to the affected regions. India became one of the first nations to offer aid to Pakistan, despite the generally poor relations between the two countries, and by that November had pledged 1.3 million U.S. dollars, equivalent to $8.7 million in 2020, of assistance for the relief efforts. The Pakistani central government refused to allow the Indians to send supplies into East Pakistan by air, forcing them to be transported slowly by road instead. The Indian government also said that the Pakistanis refused an offer of military aircraft, helicopters, and boats from West Bengal to assist in the relief operations. U.S. President Nixon allocated a $10 million grant to provide food and other essential relief to the survivors of the storm, and the U.S. Ambassador to Pakistan pledged that he would assist the East Pakistan government in every way possible. The U.S. sent a number of blankets, tents, and other supplies to East Pakistan. Six helicopters, two helicopters at an aid mission in Nepal, and four from the U.S. were also sent. Some 200,000 tons of wheat were shipped from the U.S. to the stricken region. By the end of November, there were 38 helicopters operating in the disaster area, 10 of which were British and 10 American. The Americans had provided about 50 small boats and the British 70 for supply distribution. It was clearly evident in the days after the cyclone impacted that the government didn't have a clear grasp on how to handle the disaster. With delayed intervention, internal strife, and inadequate resource delivery, the people were left to suffer. Due to the sheer negligence and attempt to cover up the actual progress of relief efforts, the Awami League won the December election in an overwhelming victory. The central government's handling of the relief efforts helped exacerbate the bitterness felt in East Pakistan, swelling the resistance movement there. Funds only slowly got through, and transport was slow in bringing supplies to the devastated regions. As tensions increased, in March 1971, foreign personnel evacuated because of fears of violence. The situation deteriorated further and evolved into civil war and genocide. The conflict widened into the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971 in December and concluded with the founding of Bangladesh. This would be one of the first times that a natural event helped to trigger a civil war. As we round out the episode for the week, several key advancements were made following this disaster, one of those being the Red Crescent developing a cyclone warning system that would further develop into a full-fledged program aimed at enhancing preparedness and constructing shelters. In 1966, the Red Crescent had begun to support the development of a cyclone warning system, which developed into a cyclone preparedness program in 1972. Today, that is run by the government of Bangladesh and the Bangladesh Red Crescent Society. The program's objectives are to raise public awareness of the risks of cyclones and to provide training to emergency personnel in the coastal regions of Bangladesh. In the 30 years after the 1970 cyclone, over 200 cyclone shelters were constructed in the coastal regions of Bangladesh. When the next destructive cyclone approached the country in 1991, 
Volunteers from the Cyclone Preparedness Program warned people of the cyclone two to three days before it struck land. Over 350,000 people fled their homes to shelters and other brick structures, while others sought high ground. While the 1991 cyclone killed over 138,000 people, this was significantly less than the 1970 storm, partly because of the warnings sent out by the Cyclone Preparedness Program. The Bola cyclone is another example of what not to do following a major storm impact. No advance warning was provided by the government, an adequate resource deployment and response was evident, and a leader drunk on power and beer is what led to this failure to support those affected. Between 300 and 500,000 lives were lost as a result of the storm, the deadliest in recorded history. Thank you for listening this week. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to rate it five stars, share it, and leave a comment. Be sure to follow the podcast's social media accounts. They're linked in the show notes below. Until next week, this has been Destination Disaster. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com